Hello and welcome to the latest Envcast episode. Envcast is a Society for the Environment podcast, bringing you environmental professionals in conversation each month. Each episode is designed to provide insight into the life of registered environmental professionals, featuring experts from across a wide range of sectors and disciplines. We explore what they do, why they do it, how they got to where they are now, and their future ambitions. Each guest has verified their environmental credentials by achieving Chartered Environmentalist, Registered Environmental Practitioner, or Registered Environmental Technician registration. To learn more about the Society for the Environment or our environmental registrations, please visit socenv.org.uk. That's S-O-C-E-N-V.org.uk. Enjoy the episode. I am very pleased to welcome Steve, Stephen Velebski. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Stephen. It's a pleasure. I uh, look forward to this uh, for quite a few days now. So uh, it, uh, I think yes. hopefully we can get uh, a message across to everyone. And it's quite telling that I stumbled on your first name there and not your surname, which is probably <laughs> quite unusual, but never mind. We shall carry on. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> so uh, as always with um, Envcast, uh, I'm going to hand over to you, our guest, um, to give us a flavour of what you currently do in your job uh, and any yeah. other commitments attached to that. So I'm going to hand straight over to you, Stephen. Yeah. But, uh, my, my current job is uh, the principal uh, consultant for a consultancy that I established back in uh, March 2015. And that consultancy is more focused on providing help and guidance to SMEs. Uh, but some of our clients are, in fact, major house builders. And we get involved in uh, quite a few uh, areas of environmental uh, considerations not least of which undertaking flood risk assessments, engagement with the Environment Agency. And it's something that, uh, well, the opportunity that creating the consultancy provided was that I've been in the industry for quite a number of years, but this was an opportunity to actually give something back. And I always remember when I was working for the last major PLC, uh, my sort of penultimate PDR was... uh, a case of saying, well, I'm not going to be around forever. Uh, you know, retirement's not that far away. And I've accumulated all this knowledge and experience over the years. And how and to who do I pass it on within the organisation so that they can take it to the next level? And the rather startling response I got to that was that, gosh, that's a good question. Uh, let me go away and think about it. But nothing ever came from it. So setting up the consultancy was this opportunity really to provide feedback to others in terms of all the knowledge and experience, both in terms of construction, civil engineering and environmental matters, which we've accumulated uh, ever since I came into the industry in the in the late 1960s. So saying that, I'm probably at risk now of giving my age away, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, for a start, what an excellent way of thinking about it. You're coming towards the you know latter stages of your career and you want to pass on your knowledge. Yeah. And why wouldn't people want to do that? It's, and if, if people can learn from that, obviously, you know, you've been in the industry for a few years without naming ages. Um, things have changed quite a lot from where you started, I assume. Um, oh, absolutely. Obviously, that, that continuous learning cycle must be quite the journey for a yeah. start and you know being able to pass on maybe lessons from you know, 20, 30 years ago, but also how the technology and so on has changed very recently. It must be very valuable for the industry, I would have thought. Um, 
I think it is. And, you know, the, the, we're doing things today and considering things today that we actually got involved in back in the mid-1970s, uh, which is something I might allude to a little bit later on. Mm. But, uh, you know, I think it's this accumulated knowledge. I think we all have a moral and professional obligation to pass this on by whatever means become available to us, because how do you actually continue that progressive learning and give people the benchmark and the stepping stone to take matters to the next level? And it's all part, in many respects, of, of gathering the evidence together and making well-informed decisions for future environmental considerations. Mm. Well, I guess that's an, an, in terms of passing knowledge on, that's an enormous part of what professional bodies aim to do in terms of you know the continuous yeah. learning and so on. Um, and I'm not just referring to the Society of the Environment here, but um, CIOB, um, and I know you're, you're a fellow of um, CABE, uh, yeah. Trust Association of Building Engineers and, and, and various other professional bodies. So um, I think obviously you work relatively closely with CIOB for a start, um, which yeah. I, I would hope that they were very, very... <laughs> Um, happy to be able to share the knowledge that you're quite willing to share, which is, which is yeah. Very useful well, indeed. we've written a few papers that uh, uh, reside in the the CIOB library, and some of them actually do cover environmental issues. Good. So, Good. so it, it, it's there as a repository for a depository for for everyone to actually gain access to it. And I think perhaps there are things that CIOB need to do in terms of expanding the availability of this information and making our members better informed that it does exist and that they can gain access to it. It is improving. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, it, it's probably one of the things, I think particularly that uh, the CIOB has actually got on the agenda in mm. terms of as we move forward and move into far greater understanding of the importance of environmental sustainability. Quite right. Well, as you know, the Society for the Environment has been working closer and closer with uh, CIOB over the last couple of years in particular. So yeah. uh, hopefully uh, we're able to support that as much as, as possible. Yeah. Um, back to your, um, your day job and your consultancy. Um, you mentioned uh, working with SMEs and uh, largely around yeah. uh, house building sector and, and that kind yeah. of thing. So, so to expand on that, what kind of projects do you get involved with? What kind of clients? Um, how, how do your skill sets fall within that yeah but my background within construction generally has been engineering technical matters and um been spent many many years looking at land acquisition due diligence uh which is quite fundamental uh in terms of its importance to house builders and it's a case of actually assessing all the uh technical planning and commercial considerations uh, so that you don't actually literally get caught out in terms of not having provided sufficient financial provisions within a development. But it, it's also about, well, what are the best possible solutions here in terms of moving things forward? Um, we've been doing things like uh, surface water attenuation. The first scheme that I was involved in, in Stockport, uh, for a, a development of just under a 1,000 units, uh, was provided the first two surface water storage attenuation lagoons, largely because of flooding problems downstream. In the context of today, uh, it would be deemed to be SUDS infrastructure. So SUDS is not new. It's all about the management and control of surface water runoff. And I think the, these are the sorts of benefits that we can bring to our SMEs and indeed to major clients 
in terms of how to approach these things. And quite recently, we've done quite a number of flood risk assessments, uh, some large sites, some small sites. Uh, I've also been uh, retained by one of the major house builders to provide a paper on how best to deal with uh, the vexed issue of nutrient neutrality at the present time. And in particular, engaging with natural, attempting to engage with natural England about the calculation methodology, which I'd be perfectly honest and say it does contain flaws in terms of the calculations and the assumptions that have been made. Uh, there is a degree of reluctance on their part to engage, but we're trying to broker that on behalf of a major house builder. And in addition to that, we've been sharing the evidence that we've gathered with the Home Builders Federation who in turn are using some of that evidence then to revert back to the central government in terms of saying, you haven't quite got this right. We need to sit down and look at this from a far more sensible and practical perspective. And in terms of other guidance, um, contaminated land, it's investigation and remediation. That's primarily where my postgraduate degree uh, is centred. And I've always found ground investigation a fascinating area of the business what you find in the ground is quite staggering at times and the implications it's got can be quite considerable um, and it's again something that we might touch upon a little bit later on in terms of the consequences of inadequate ground investigation but well, these are the areas that we provide advice to our clients right fair enough yeah yeah um in terms of we're touching on a couple of those things um for someone with a lack of knowledge like myself um in terms of a ground investigation well what does that look like practically how, how do you go about doing that it's it, it's quite literally it's uh, an iterative process it, it really starts with things like gathering information as a desk study using that information to really plan and determine what sort of physical intrusion uh, in terms of excavations, boreholes that you actually need to do to determine the characteristics of the site. A greenfield site tends to be okay. You, you're looking generally at the, the, the strength characteristics of the underlying soils, their ability to carry a foundation. On brownfield sites, it's a far more complicated than that because this is about, well, what if you remediate this site and you look at the end use of that site, are you going to leave in place uh, residual contaminants that could be uh, a threat to public health and, and the wider health of that community. So it, it's quite uh, an in-depth and fundamentally important approach to the construction process. Uh, we monitor for things like ground gases, carbon dioxide, methane. And one of the issues that I was involved in back in 1988 was a, a site that was quite close to a domestic landfill site and what we found on this site which really was quite it was okay there was no issues with it but we had to cap a mine shaft off but what we found was after we capped it off we were still detecting uh, methane emissions from the ground and we thought gosh we haven't sealed this properly we're still encountering mine gas we better do a little bit more investigation turned out it was a lateral migration of landfill gas and the subsequent uh, issue ended up in the uh, in the High Court. And uh, thankfully, as the plaintiff, we, we were very successful uh, against an errant landfill contractor. But it just shows the importance of 
during the investigation. And I think somebody, I think it was an accountant that one at, once asked me the question, well, we pay all this money for ground investigation. Uh, how accurate is the information that we get? I said, well, to be truly accurate, I said, uh, if I told you it was 1%, I said, that's about it. So because that's all you've actually exposed as a percentage of the site area that you're investigating. The rest of it is how you assess the knowledge that you've accumulated from those investigations to arrive at ground condition considerations, remediation mm -hmm. considerations, and even the, the aftercare of that particular site. And he was, I have to say, he was absolutely shocked. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. Well, I assume to get 100% accuracy, you just have to dig up the whole thing and exactly. test every single element of it, which could be quite challenging, I imagine. Oh, very much so. <laughs> and costly. Um, well, I, this, these kind of things are very... I mean, I, obviously, I do. I work for the Society for the Environment and I do this podcast and so on, but the, the yeah. amount of different expertise we work with is incredible. And some of the things linked with various things I do in my own life, I mean, I'm not a builder in any way, yeah. but, you know humble brag i've had an extension built on my house yeah. but it's, it's given me an idea it's, it was interesting to watch the process because i was i knew that i'd work with you know i work with environmental professionals within the built environment how does yeah. my local builder interact with those ideas that they talk about <laughs> and that kind of thing and the fact that they you know took out foundations and that kind of thing and it was very interesting yeah. to see what's underneath it luckily no mine shafts that they had yeah. to cap off but yeah very interested here with the kind of things that you find oh, it's, there must it, be all it's sorts of things uh, it, it's a fascinating area and it, it's it's one of the things that really uh, captivated me if i had my time again i'd go and do the same thing again i think that's what's so interesting about it in addition to the, the wider issues associated with the built environment and i think you know construction is so challenging and rewarding at the same time it, you never ever stop learning even today, I've got a paper from one of our uh, potential applicants for Chartered Environmentalist. He wrote it about nine years ago, and it's an absolutely exceptional paper on uh, sustainable procurement. Right. And there are things in there that, yes, I was aware of them, but not to the extent and the detail to which this paper actually informs. And I think that's what it's all about. It's this constant iteration to extend and improve our knowledge of what we do and how it impacts upon the built environment. And some rather simple decisions can make a significant and quite positive difference. Well, being a being an assessor for Charter Environmentalist Registration with CRB, that must be a, a good part of your CPD probably for the year, given the, you know, the, the knowledge you must pick up from the different applications. It, it must be quite interesting. We do, as panel members, we've often said that this is a learning experience for yeah. us. You know, there are, yes, as we said before, our knowledge is targeted to the, or we pick a panel that's targeted towards the inherent skills of the applicant, because it's not fair not to do that. Uh, but we find that we learn so much. And I think I mentioned to you when we, we last engaged that we had somebody who was interested or his primary role was decommissioning oil and gas rigs. Oh, yes. And you'd never think that sustainability considerations would have featured anywhere, but quite significant considerations applied by this particular applicant. And it was a, a completely new learning experience for the panel. Well, ho hopefully that's valuable for anyone who's thinking about applying to become a chartered environmentalist. The fact that, you know, 
the assessors don't know everything and no, nobody yep. knows everything about that you know uh, the the depth of various different field or, or the breadth of um knowledge within a member body um and the fact is you're you're probably teaching the assessors something here and there not everything but um you know yeah. you, you won't be uh you know, criticized on various things things if you don't get it quite right or, or obviously yeah. it needs to be full of knowledge but um hopefully it's less of a scary prospect if you think yeah. about it well that is poor form for me isn't it i haven't even got my mobile on site <laughs> unbelievable yeah. don't tell sophie sophia i know she's listening but um, we'll cut that bit out shall we um right sorry i've lost my track now okay let's carry on so how have you gained your knowledge and experience to be able to be successful in the in the consultancy work that you do you, i think you mentioned just then uh postgraduate qualification uh, yeah well are there other qualifications or um platforms for continuous learning that you use to to, to stay up to date I, I think a lot of it is is you you derive a lot of learning from engagement and i, I suppose i've been very fortunate to actually be in a position to have been a one of the two senior consultants retained by the Home Builders Federation for a good number of years, in addition to working with uh, uh, senior government officials on aspects of the building regulations, and with the Cabinet Office uh, on uh, remediation licensing, which again was an interesting thing in its own right. But these really do give you the pointers in terms of you get to feel where government policy is taking you, and it's a prompt for you to actually think, well, if government's going down that particular route, we really do need to start to think about, well, what are the implications, the ramifications for UK construction? And how do we understand what those implications are and communicate that to the, the rest of the, of the industry? And CIOB is becoming very, very good at picking up on the issues, largely because of its engagement policy with central government and how it in turn then uh, refines the intelligence it receives and how it informs its members and essentially we are an extension of that you know, we can see through the environment act in particular what the government strategy is towards environmental sustainability and the four strands that it actually embraces um, perhaps one of the more important ones being uh, biodiversity offsetting uh, fundamentally important and of course biodiversity is a, is a key component of, uh, of construction what we do uh, how we do it what we leave behind the legacy in terms of the biodiversity considerations on a site so this is where you get the, the the direction and i think it's up to us as professionals to interpret this these messages that are coming to look at the wider environmental issues and say well how do we bring positive influence to bear how can we influence government to think about prospective changes to the building regulations so that we have a let's say a level playing field for all participants in construction and that there are no opportunities to gain the system well there's quite a lot of um stakeholders involved in those kind of decisions i imagine um and I imagine it must take quite a, a lot of consultation to be able to get those kind of things in place. Um, but in, in terms of your role within that, how, how, well, for a start, 
when you're working with people like the Environment Agency and that kind of thing, um, how do you get involved in that kind of thing as a as a consultant with your own business and that kind of thing? Yeah. How do you get onto the table or um, write papers for them or anything like that? It, it, it's usually a case of clients will come to us and say, well, we're looking at the development in this particular area. Uh, we think we might need a flood risk assessment. Can you do it for us? And I'll say, well, yes, we can. But I think in terms of being honest with the, the client, if they're trying to fly a kite in terms of looking at a development which is really uh, part and parcel of a, uh, let's say, a, a floodplain, you've got to be honest and turn around and say, unless you can get the environment agency to change its mind about the flood risk setting of that particular site, you're just throwing your money away. There are others out there that will say, I'll oh, leave it with us. We'll see what we can do for you. But at the end of the day, what you have to do is be honest. And if it's worthwhile doing the work on behalf of the client, then you really do have to get amongst the detail. You have to start to think about historic flooding events, uh, the hydraulic criteria for water courses, modelling of water courses. Uh, and that takes me back to my early days of when I first joined the industry. Uh, I'd not been in it for too long. And one of the things that I was exposed to as part of the CIOB learning was the, in final part one, the, one of the subject areas was materials and environmental science. So I was studying environmental science from a construction perspective way back in 1974. And four years later, we're into things like uh, uh, surface water attenuation, but it, within that gap, I'd had a limited involvement in terms of the, the flood risk, uh, um, the flood risk assessments that were done at the time. Um, it was uh, that was a watershed moment, and a lot of people like George Wimpy, major companies like that, did an awful lot of work for the river authorities that uh, existed at the time and produced ultimately what they call the flood studies report, which was the founding principle of all the flood risk assessments that we do today. And as an extension of that, I, I've actually been sort of seconded to spend some time on behalf of uh, the house building industry to work alongside people like H.R. Wallingford, who provided the or conceived the uh, Wallingford design procedure for surface water sewers. So it's, it's a complete bag of tell of, of issues in construction. <laughs> yeah. And if I guess, yeah. you know, the, the opportunities that you've been presented with i suppose um have you what have you essentially um said yes to lots of things instead yeah. of straying away from supporting um you know government departments in building new guidance and that kind of thing have you yeah. proactively wanted to get involved in that and kind of said yes let's sit on that and i can learn from it myself and hopefully contribute it in some, to it in some yeah, way. Yeah, I've, I've done that. I, I, I've appeared at um, two or three environmental committees in Westminster, uh, mm. particularly when it comes to uh, development and flood risk. Uh, flood risk is, is very much high on the, on the government's agenda and will yes. continue to be so for a, a good number of years. It is one of the key areas that has quite a, a, an impact on construction generally. But yes, you, you learn from these things. You learn the perspective of others and you, you learn to respect the position of other bodies and organisations 
which in turn can actually modify your own thinking in terms of saying, well, to be honest, they're right. You have to start to think about these things. And, and as an example, one of the things from a personal point of view, I said, well, here we are. We talk a lot about rainfall intensity, flood risk, uh, but nobody's actually said, well, isn't it time that we actually sat down and thought about how we design surface water sewers? We are relying on designs for surface water sewers that really had their origins in, in the early 1920s. And we've moved forward since then. We should be a little bit more circumspect about these things, a little bit more realistic in terms of saying, well, if we have to do it, if we've got climatic change that demands that we look at these things, then it's about time that we started to think about them. And that's where you try through the engagement we have with government to bring about a degree of influence. You've gone mute. Uh, oh i have sorry <laughs> i'm showing all my professionalism here um well hopefully the you know the, the the changes are happening um whether it's slowly or not uh and, and have happened over the years but um it is obviously with the cop 20 we're recording this during cop 27 yeah that um, was appropriate <laughs> yeah yeah um but this will be released in december so yeah um it's quite a pertinent time for for the environment world um but yeah hopefully things are changing anyway but we'll continue yeah. to change at a more rapid pace uh whether it's in the built environment or or, or whether it might be yeah. um back to your um your roles i was gonna say your role jen but the the various um different aspects of your roles what yeah. are some of the challenges that you face you've probably mentioned a few of them already but uh, for me one of the the challenges is there is a lack of joined up thinking um we we do our best to actually try and draw the relative uh, or the respective statutory bodies together uh but it, it is immensely difficult and we find that there's often a bit of a silo mentality in terms of a particular organisation will look at a particular aspect and they don't actually think a bit laterally and look at the wider picture and consider the, the potential unintended consequences. And we do find that working with the Environment Agency, I have to say, they're between a rock and a hard place, the Environment Agency, because they do not get adequate funding from government to actually do the job that they're there to do and that's part of the frustration engaging with them and you need to also engage sometimes with lead local flood authorities local planning authorities highway authorities and there's all there's always been this talk about well before you make a planning application you should be having sort of pre-application discussions great that's something I've advocated for the best part of 20 years. But getting these people around the table, being able to formulate uh, a sensible strategy in terms of the development of the site, whether or not it's housing, whether or not it's commercial, whether or not it's industrial, is immensely difficult. And I just wish that these people would actually recognise that there are a much wider set of objectives that need to be considered. There are competing objectives. Compromise is always the way forward. But how do you arrive at this compromise that actually provides the best possible solution 
and, yeah. and that's where the frustration is. That's where client money gets spent in, in terms of an awful lot of time, abortive time, when quite clearly you get around the table at day one, you look at the proposal, you decide what needs to be done, what can be done, uh, and it goes beyond just what you do in the ground. It it's then starts to think about, well, what do you do from a, a let's say, a, a building perspective? about the environmental credentials of the building that you're proposing. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, there's a default position that what it says in the building ranks is predominantly what most people do. You'll find that because of the costs involved, they're very, very reluctant to go beyond the statutory provisions within planning and building regulations. So yeah. again, yeah. one of the areas that we, we find is quite frustrating. I imagine so. In terms of going beyond building regulations, is that um, partly at the moment something that the client decides? You know, I want a higher spec on environmental considerations in whatever way it might be, insulation or the groundworks or, or whatever. Is that a lot to do with what the client wants rather than um, how the the builders, what, what, they, what their opinions are on it? Yeah, you always have to respect what, what the client's wishes and demands are. If, if they're trying to sort of game the system, you tell them. Yes. Or I'd like to think most consultants would actually tell them. But you can point out to them areas where there could be a potential win-win. Mm. One of the simple ones, again, we, we've been talking about it for a good number of years, and that is in terms of water use. Why don't we have water use labelling on our appliances just as we have for electricity usage, energy usage? It, it's such a simple, low-cost, nil-cost, I would suggest, uh, approach that can bring enormous benefits to uh, to any number of potential clients. Yeah. And these are the areas that I think we can make a difference. But there's a reluctance, the reluctance on the part of uh, the water companies to actually go down that route. You know, yeah. We've honoured them for a good number of years in terms of saying, well, if you want to change the attitude of people towards water use, why don't you start with compulsory uh, metering as a starter, and also compulsory uh, water use labelling. doesn't cost a great deal, but there is this reluctance that you're up against all the time. And I think in terms of the water use side of things, one of the concerns that we have is that the current level of water or drinking water leakage in the United Kingdom could actually, on a daily basis, serve the the water use needs of 100,000 houses each and every year. And when you think about the amount of water leakage to put it into some sort of physical perspective, it will actually fill Kielder Reservoir five times over each and every year. That's how much water we lose. It's the equivalent of one person's water use per day. And you cannot get the water and sewer or the sewage companies or water companies to actually do something about it. No. Well, in terms of change and how fast it happens, do certain large-scale challenges such as the current financial challenges that people have, do, does that tend to create change quicker? Or is that uh, it's a, that's a wide-sweeping question, I imagine. But you know, in terms of the client's wants to, say, um, make ha- houses more insulated beyond yeah. building regulations because of the energy crisis currently, is that something that happens or is that just... Um, speculation from my brain there'll be there'll be one or two usually smes that will go down the passive house route 
um, um, which is better than what uh, the building regs actually require of you. But I have to say that the majority of major house builders and the medium-sized house builders will default to what the minimum requirements are in the building regulations. Uh, yeah. Perhaps we should use the building regulations more to actually bring about this this positive change. Mm. But it does have a cost. Uh, there's a current uh, sort of uh, strand of thought that says, well, yeah, do it. It comes off the land value. Well, it, it doesn't come off the land value. We've been there before. You take too much out of the land value, development doesn't take place. Uh, and that happened with uh, the likes of development land tax way back in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. Yeah, you have to find this delicate balance in terms of what, what is achievable, what should be achieved. And in the same light, is that actually aligned to a clearly defined government strategy that takes us to a much higher platform in terms of energy performance and sustainability. You know, I would venture to suggest that other than changes to the building regulations here in the UK, we really haven't got the leadership and the strategy from central government to actually encourage people to go down that route. Oh, I'm not sure how much we should talk about government strategy at the moment. Um, go, going back a few years, let's say, um, and uh, moving on to more of your uh, the early days of, of why you went into your the, your profession. Why did you choose to go into civil engineering? And then did you then start to hone your skills on the environment side when yeah. you were in the profession? Uh, I, I think that's an interesting question. Uh, when I was at school, uh, I contemplated uh, sort of three options. Um, I was fortunate enough to be reasonably good at, uh, at football, to be offered the opportunity to play, play for what was then uh, a League One uh, football team. And, really? Uh, yeah. And Interesting. Two of us at my school that could actually contemplate it. Uh, my, my friend at school, he actually went and joined, but we kicked him out once he got to the, uh, the A team. Uh, going to a Catholic school, um, the one was actually sort of like encouraged to think about joining the priesthood. So, yeah. as they said, the calling from upstairs wasn't sufficiently strong enough. <laughs> the third one was, uh, was being an engineer. So, I started off life as a mechanical engineer, yes. where I lived at the time. That was what the expectation was. But it, it was my father who actually said, There's no investment taking place in this area of industry in the UK. He said, Move on go and do something that's real engineering. And that's when I chose at that moment. I'd actually injured my knee playing football, wrote off to all the major uh, contractors, and George Wimpy offered me a job back in 1969. And that's when it all started. And I have to say, I have enjoyed every minute of every day ever since I came into the industry. Well, that's a good position to be in. It's, it, it's a fascinating industry. It's, Phil, it's just... You know, doesn't matter what your particular academic learning is, lawyer, sort of accountant, there are jobs in construction and environmental issues related to construction that are so rewarding. And it's just a pity we can't encourage more of our school children to think about careers in construction. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, hopefully the rise of apprenticeships and so on will, will help that. But Absolutely. 
yeah. hopefully the, the yeah the the increased amount of routes into the profession will be will be useful um and obviously the scientific environment is currently looking into things like yeah green jobs green skills yeah. uh, which clearly link very much to to the built environment and yeah all the aspects of that um so that's how you go into civil engineering when did the environment side come in? Did you always have an interest in that, or did it? Did something happen that made you think about it more? And then, yeah, I, I, I go back to CIOB final part one and being exposed to materials and environmental science from a construction perspective. Those are probably the embryonic stages of learning about environmental science. And one of the particular areas that we focused on was things like heat loss through buildings. Uh, the interreaction of dissimilar materials. Uh, It was really an extension of of O-level and A-level physics, but it was very much in a construction perspective. And I found it quite fascinating. And then as the years went by to about the the uh, mid-1970s, when we started to look at uh, what was actually happening uh, from a surface water point of view, and we started to develop things like uh, surface water attenuation. Uh, again, as a first on that particular site in Stockport, that was the next stage. You know, we had the flood studies report, which was an integral part of things like that. But as the years have gone by, and in particular when we started to think about, uh, from my career point of view, in terms of this action in the court involving the migration of landfill gas, it suddenly became aware that landfill gas and its components of CO2 and methane were two of the principal components of greenhouse gas emissions. And you started to think, you know, that this can't be right. This is something that needs to be considered. It's something that needs to be uh, taken into consideration. But it, it was sort of very much on a slow burn until we yeah. actually yeah. got to sort of the, uh, the the back end of the 1990s and things started to really take off in terms of uh, environmental considerations. But, uh, but it was, from a construction point of view, things are relatively sort of static. And it, it's all, I'd say it's only in the last 20, 25 years that environmental considerations have really gone to the fore. And they've been quite fascinating in terms of how we've developed in terms of how we've modified new values for new homes, uh, where we are now in terms of part L of the building regulations, part F of the building regulations, and, and the conflict between part L and part F when it comes to energy efficiency and, and adequate ventilation. I won't pretend to know what part L and part F are, but uh, I'm sure the listeners might have an understanding of what that might be. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure all members of CIO will be, will be acutely aware of what they are. <laughs> Let's hope so. Um, in terms of, uh, yeah, you, you, you developed an awareness of the environment and the aspects of uh, the built environment that, that that was on your plate at the time, and and, and uh, you started to um, work in those areas, I suppose. And then yeah. in 2006, you became a chartered environmentalist, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that must be, you're probably one of the first chartered environmentalists, I imagine, from CIOB. Um and I think the first, very first chartered environmentalist overall came about in 2004. Yeah. Um, but in terms of that registration, what what does being a CM mean to you? I, I think I think it's a, a phenomenal um, recognition 
that in addition to being a construction professional, you're an informed construction professional that knows about the impact that any form of construction has on the environment and how you in turn can actually influence betterment to actually promote sustainable constructions, environmental sustainability. And I think, you know, it's been long overdue that it's a qualification that needs to be, let's say, better exploited is probably the right word, in terms of demonstrating to people, look, the environmental agenda is not just with us. It's growing day by day. Whatever we do as construction professionals, we have an impact on the environment. This is a qualification that recognises that you understand what the the issues are, what the dilemmas are, what the conflicts are, but more importantly, how you can bring to clients and other organisations how they can achieve small steps towards much improved uh, environmental sustainability. And I think, for me, that's what CM is all about. Well, I can't do much else than agree with all that, it's fair to say. Um, and you, obviously, you play an integral role in terms of the uh, CIOB and, and their Chartered Environmentalist registration that they offer to their members. So, so why did you decide to, you know, you became a Chartered Environmentalist, but then you, you went that extra step to support and champion CIOB in their... Yeah. Chartered Environmentalist registration work, you know, your assessor yeah. and so on. Why did you want to do that? Because I, I wanted more of the CIOB members to recognise that they've been involved in environmental matters indirectly, I would suggest almost throughout their career. They're in a position whereby they can make a change, they can make an informed change. But this was an opportunity to actually demonstrate that the extent and the eclectic nature of our members is such that each and every one of us in each discipline that we are involved in can make a positive difference. And that's why we should encourage more and more of our members, no matter whether or not, as we said before, an archaeologist, an architect, an engineer, a finance person, a lawyer, you've got a part to play in all of this. So as a CIOB member, why don't you just push yourself that little extra mile and recognise that you are in a position to make a positive and lasting and positive, uh, uh, difference to the work that we all do? Well, if we needed a call to action, that would be the call to action, I think. Yeah. Um, talk to CIOB, see what, the, see how, what the, for a start, what the membership involves, if you're not a member already, and then yeah. uh, the potential to showcase your environmental leadership. Yeah. You can lead the way with... You know, stewardship yeah. in your environmental work with chartered environmentalist registration if that's yeah. something that you want to do yeah. um and it moves on that agenda doesn't it it does and i think more recently i, I think thanks to uh, mandy we've done a few more webinars on becoming a chartered environmentalist and this year we have probably seen the greatest number of applicants that we've actually had for chartered environmentalists than at any other time and I think for me that's that's encouraging because these people do have the requisite skills. They're the corporate members of, uh, of CIOB. So why shouldn't we actually bolt that qualification, that recognition onto what we're already doing? And the more we can actually encourage to do that. And when we see the, the quality of some of the, the applicants' submissions, you can see quite clearly that uh, 
they're well involved and, and they're making influential positive decisions about the way construction goes forward. At the same time, they do have uh, conflict. They do have a dilemma with clients and with other professions, but the majority of the applicants that we see are committed to learn from that and to still keep moving the, the agenda forward because it is the right thing to do. Yeah, sometimes you you won't be successful in you know ensuring you get the environmental impact or lower the environmental impact as much as you want to because yeah. of the barriers that are in place within the industry. But I imagine with like a, a chart environmentalist application with CIOB, the fact that you have the knowledge to try to go down that route, yeah. it might not have succeeded to its fullest extent, but I assume that's still valuable for a yeah. for a chartered environmentalist to talk about or put down on an application. Is that right? Yeah, yeah very much so. Okay. You know, as, as we say, what we look for is, if you want this qualification, how have you made a difference? How can you make a difference? What would you see in the value of this qualification? Do you see it as the same level of value that we value it? And therefore, you use it to good effect in terms of not just explaining to clients that you have these credentials, but also to some of the statutory bodies. And one of the things I find quite uh, quite interesting is that the number of people who actually promote themselves as having care and conduct of the environment are involved in environmental conditions and considerations can't be bothered uh, assuming uh, chartered environmentalist status. It's so important, and you know, it, it is the future. Okay. Um, then my next question is about um, potentially the encouragement for other people to think about a career in the environment. Um, and I wonder if this might link back to, I think you said your your, your father said that there was um, a lack of investment in mechanical engineering side when, way back when, yeah. and kind of that encouraged you to go down the civil engineering side. Yeah. Is, is, would part of your encouragement, and I'm not, not trying to put words in your mouth, but... Um, <laughs> If, if people were thinking about a career in the environment, whatever that might look like, yeah, is that investment that's happening at the moment part of the encouragement? Do you think? I, I think it is. Um, uh, if you if you look at ground related issues in terms of civil engineering per se, um, if you think about what we do in civil engineering, um, particularly when it comes down to earthworks. Whatever opportunities present themselves in terms of reusing excavated materials, if you can use them, if you can risk assess them, they've got the right properties for reuse. Uh, it is something that the industry has been doing for a good number of years. But what about modifying those materials, making them even better? You think about things like lime stabilization of a certain clay soils so that you can then create a building platform. Uh, minimize the cost of excavation construction the, these are enormous considerations that can have such a positive benefit rather than dig this stuff out of the ground put it on the back of a lorry and take it to a landfill site somewhere why not contemplate its reuse civil engineering is based on that concept and there is in fact a british standard that's, uh, that's labeled earthworks and how to reuse materials so the, the tools are there. We just need the people to apply them in, in a lot more uh, circumstances. It sounds like there's plenty of opportunities for those who are thinking oh, about ab it. 
Absolutely. Whether they're at the very starts of their career journey, whatever that might be, yeah. or whether they want to yeah. um, change their change their skill sets and, and go into a different industry. I imagine yeah. there's lots Again, of opportunities. Site managers, you know, if they, if they want to learn more about why they're building in a particular way, rather than just sort of adhere to a set of drawings which have been produced and which they hope are compliant, uh, it's a case of saying, well, you know, if you deviate from those, do you realise the consequences of what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And in particular, when it comes to things like thermal bridging, uh, in, in sort of, let's say, just a simple cavity wall, uh, don't do it. These are the reasons why you don't want to do it. Yeah. You look at air, tight, air tightness testing in, in, a, in a building, you know, and beginning to understand and explain uh, why these actually uh, are essential requirements. And I have to say, the, the last company I worked for, the construction manager or the construction director was very, very keen to understand why environmental considerations related to the building fabric we're becoming increasingly important and you know that's for me that's that's a success if you can get the construction people as well as the designer people working together and yeah. working yeah. in harmony that's that's what it's all about yeah and if you can get that across the board as a as a standard thing that happens it's, it yeah. can only be a positive thing surely yeah. yeah absolutely okay last couple of questions um first one what's next for you I know that's quite broad. <laughs> do you have any particular plans going forwards that uh, are particularly of interest to yourself at the moment? I, I have a personal objective, and I, I have this desire to actually write, whether or not it's a paper or a short book, on construction and environmental uh, construction and sustainability and the impact that it actually has on the environment, but more importantly, how others can actually start to begin to appreciate it. It is something I've had at the back of my mind for a good number of years. It's finding the time and the commitment to do it. But I think in the here and now, while I'm still fit and healthy enough to be able to give uh, clients a steer in the appropriate direction, I think most definitely that's what I'd like to do. I'd actually like to write a much more detailed paper on uh, the issues surrounding nutrient neutrality. I'm part way there, having done it for a major house builder here in the UK. If I had their consent to actually sort of redraft it and present it as a, a formalised public paper, then I, th- I think potentially that could have uh, benefits. And it might actually encourage Natural England to come to the table and start to think and discuss in a frank way how they're approaching nutrient neutrality because it, it's it's not right at the moment. Right. Well, we'll have, to, we'll have to keep an eye on the uh, resources available on the CIOB website then, see if, yeah. see if it pops up. <laughs> and uh, the book will be available in your local Waterstones yeah. soon. <laughs> yes. Uh, other bookshops are available. But um, My last question, which, was, which is a question we ask all of our uh, podcast guests, mm-hmm. is if you're able to influence world leaders for a day, and given it is COP27 yeah. fortnights, um, not that it has to be environment related, but uh, what would be the first thing you would consider talking about? I, I think for me, it is a global problem. So push the geopolitics to one side, come to a, a worldwide strategy, define that strategy linked to what each individual company country is capable of doing 
within its economic framework and actually be far more positive and provide leadership. Uh, and there are many people I agree with in terms of saying, you go to these meetings, you fly there, you talk about it, but you don't do anything about it. And it, it's it's the doing that has to be the way forward. And I think as much as it, it it's hurting the UK economy here in terms of the, the pursuit towards renewables, electric vehicle charging, it's the right thing to actually be doing. But likewise, I, th I think we need a much more balanced energy policy. And there's too much volatility in the world regarding energy generally. And I think, unfortunately, I don't think there's a great deal that any leader can do anything about it. But start by removing the geopolitics. Recognise globally that this is a major issue. This being various environmental issues, I assume. Yeah, yeah. There you go. See if I, see, we'll see what comes out of um, see what comes COP out of COP. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're recording on the Tuesday of the first week, so yeah. not a lot has happened yet, apart from some um, um, good words from people yeah. from world yeah. leaders, and we'll see what those useful yeah. words come out and uh, yeah. and uh, what the conclusions are. Uh, not that we'll know the conclusion for a few years, I imagine, but yeah positives hopefully yeah i i, I think for, from a uk perspective the industries generally need to be better incentivized they need to be better incentivized learning they keep talking about this skills gap and this skills shortage now we've been talking about it for over a decade and we knew from what the census was telling us that the the sort of the baby boomers of our year were moving into retirement there was this huge deficit that was going to take place in in construction, particularly mm. in terms of building control and things like that. But we've done absolutely nothing to address the balance. We haven't incentivized anyone to say, "Well, you train these people." Well, you know, let's straight off the top of my head, let's have a sort of a uh, a corporation tax reduction to pay for it, providing it's a body-finely trading me uh, training mechanism, and and you can provide the evidence to justify what you're doing, and link that to actually try and encourage more and more people to come into this particular part of the uh, of industry. Yeah, and, and that, that's where the leadership comes into all of this. Mm. Well, the challenges continue, um, but in terms of our end cast today, I think we'll leave it at that note. So. Thank you very much, Stephen, for your time today. Pleasure. For joining us. Absolute pleasure. It's been fantastic speaking to you today. Um, I'm going to point people towards a blog that Stephen wrote, on, and it's on the CIOB website. Um, so we'll link to that in the description of whatever platform you are uh, listening to this on. Um, if you wanted to search for it on the CIOB website, it's called Why Is It So Important for CIOB Members and Fellows to Become Chartered Environmentalists? So uh, something that's very close to Stephen's heart, something that's very close to the Society for the Environment's heart, it's fair to say. Um, and next month, we hope to delve into the world of agricultural engineering. So I look forward to speaking to you again then in terms of our audience. But Stephen, I hope to speak to you again soon elsewhere. Yeah, I look forward to it, Phil. Thank thanks you. for the opportunity. No problem at all. Thank you for listening to today's Endcast episode. If you'd like to hear more about the Chartered Environmentalist, Registered Environmental Practitioner or Registered Environmental Technician registrations, please look at our resources available at socenv.org.uk. 
Alternatively, visit our YouTube channel where you can find a variety of environmental webinar series, uh, registration guides, and various insights from registrants themselves. Just search for Society for the Environment on YouTube. To keep up to date with what's going on at the Society for the Environment, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram via at SOCEMV underscore HQ and via LinkedIn by searching for Society for the Environment with SOCEMV in the brackets. We will release a new Envcast episode on the first Wednesday of each month. So if you're interested in future podcasts, please do subscribe. You can subscribe and review for a variety of platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox.